Thank you for listening to Lone Star Community Radio. This program was broadcasted and recorded live from the LSCR studios in downtown Conroe, Texas. Lone Star Community Radio is supported by listeners like you. Donate and sponsor today. For more information on getting involved with Lone Star Community Radio, contact us at lscrstudios at gmail.com or visit us online at www.irlonestar.com. The Legal Connection Show airs on Tuesdays from noon to one, and it's also on FM 104.5 and FM 106.1. And if you miss our broadcast, you can also get us on Facebook at The Legal Connection Show, or um, we're also on um, IRLoneStar.com's website if you need to go back and look at any of the many uh, previous shows we've done. Um, The Legal Connection Show is a community service program that helps... uh, People in the commun- uh, the Montgomery County area uh, in general, even though we have World Wide Web, uh, to uh, self-help or assess their legal issues. And so um, each week we do a different topic. Today we're going to do commercial leases, commercial tenancies. And um, this topic uh, came up, uh, has come up several times in uh, the last couple of years for me, because uh, particularly after COVID, because interest rates were so low. And people had investment property. So they wanted to improve, uh, develop, or uh, lease out, use their investment property for some purpose. And when you do that, you don't want to just, you know, um, go out and just get anybody that that says, hey, I want to rent your property. You need to uh, protect yourself uh, as a landlord. And in turn, if you're a tenant looking to lease because it's a new startup business, for whatever reason, you don't. You, want, you don't want to invest in land, or maybe you don't have land because it's too expensive right now. Um, for whatever the reason is that you want to rent instead of develop on your own property, um, you also need to be aware of certain legal ramifications of entering a lease and using that uh, someone else's property for whatever purpose it is that, that suits the, the business that, you're, that you want to run. And, you know, commercial is anything that basically is not residential um, in the big scheme of things. Uh, Commercial is divided into several different areas. You've got warehousing, uh, you've got uh, industrial, uh, you've got multifamily, uh, you've got single family. So there's a lot of different types of commercial. uh, Depending on the type of commercial um, uh, business that you want to run, that's where you're going to look to see what kind of commercial property that is best suited to you. Um, recently, uh, my husband and I were looking into uh, opening up a franchise, and so that doesn't fall into any one of those categories. I guess perhaps uh, retail, um, maybe not even retail. I guess it would just be uh, food services. But um, when you look into that, you have to look at, and I know that uh, Lone's, uh, IR Lone Star Radio has a, a franchise show, or at least they did, um, that kind of tells you about the cost in uh, creating a franchise. And, you know, if you're going to open a food business, you don't have to franchise, but there's uh, a big benefit in marketing. Um, uh, if, and if you're not a, a cook or a chef, you may want to go that direction uh, to getting a franchise. Uh, they range uh, widely in the price uh, to to get one. And in a lot of them that you have to be vetted and you won't even get the franchise if, if you don't qualify for it. Well, um, 
my husband and I were looking into either a Wendy's or a Culver's uh, for this particular area. And, uh, you know, in looking to Wendy's, you can have your own location, uh, but you've got to have a certain amount of, of income that is disposable that you can, uh, that if you, uh, if it fails, you won't lose your livelihood. And so they, they look, I believe that their requirements were that you had to have at least a million dollars to put into the business, whether you got that through a loan, debt, equity, however you want to do it, investors. But you also had to have be have a net worth of about three to four million, uh, and that means that's your net worth. That's not just what you own. That's if you were to sell everything, that's what you would you would um, uh, be. That was that's what you would would own. So if you're in a bankruptcy state, uh, just to kind of go as an example, you can be bankrupt if your debt exceeds your equitable ownership, your assets by one dollar. So it's pretty easy to, um, I think, to play around with those numbers to declare bankruptcy if you're trying to avoid a judgment like I know some people have done uh, to us when we had a judgment against them. So um, that being said, I believe that it's uh, the, the fee for Wendy's is $50,000 just for the franchise fee. And then they get 4% royalties, which is a pretty good deal. But they also move you along and they kind of tell you what to do and they guide you. And if you get the right location like these Chick-fil-A's, um, you don't really have to do – you have to set it up and run it for a while and make sure that you're following their guidelines and then you're home free. Um, I had another friend who out of college – wanted to, didn't really know what he wanted to do. He had start, he'd started several businesses. He uh, had a moving company. Um, I think he worked for his father's bank for a while. Um, he did a lot of things. We had a really good degree from UT. Um, he decided, just in passing, he was sitting around with some friends, I guess, having a drink or whatever, um, to open a nationwide insurance franchise. That just sounded so boring to me, but... This guy guaranteed, my friend, that if he followed their guidelines, that he would be wealthy. And he is. <laughs> he actually, I don't even know what the startup was for, but he got the, you know, the location. He followed everything they said to do. He borrowed some money to enter it. Uh, I don't think he knew anything about insurance other than he had a degree from UT, but I don't think it was a business degree. might have been. Um, he just followed what their guidelines were. And uh, now he has... Uh, a very uh, well-established and profitable, uh, viable insurance business, and he has for many, many years. And so um, lives in a massive house, has all the toys, you know, the boats and the skis, and goes on vacations and the Rolexes and all that stuff. So um, G-Wagon and what have you. So um, if you – franchises are not just for the uh, – you're not entrepreneurial, I'm just going to do this. They can do well if you – you follow the right guidelines and you, I guess, also the, the economy, the market, has, it all starts to kick into it when you're doing your evaluation and your business plan. But um, so we had looked into that, but that's sort of a, a sidebar to what we we're talking about today. Today we're talking about um, uh, commercial leases. And so if we wanted to, um, if we wanted to, I, I believe Chick-fil-A, they actually buy the land and that's part of their franchise fee, but you have to have you know, a certain amount of education and, you know, it has to be the right location and has to be far enough away from another. There's all these guidelines for it. And I don't know what the guidelines are for Chick-fil-A. I only know that one of our neighbors owns two of them and he makes so much money on those Chick-fil-A's that um, if, if that's the one that you choose to open and there's not one in that area and it's got the right population and it meets all their criteria and you meet their criteria, uh, you can do very well to opening a Chick-fil-A. So um, that being said, um, if you just, if you um, 
want to do, uh, open a Wendy's, let's say, and you don't have the land, I think Wendy's will help you do that. It's for some fee, and you'd probably have to have a higher net worth and all that stuff. But in my situation, I actually found the land. And because I used to, um, you know, from cradle to grave, I uh, uh, was able to uh, create the, the uh, I guess, the land and the title, uh, not the geology, but I could put together an oil and gas well drilling deal. If someone, if the owner of, uh, or of a geologist or an exploration guy said, this is where I want to put my well, I've done all the geology, I've done the 3D, this is exactly what I need, I could go get the pooling for them, I could get all of the the, the proper uh, paperwork with the Texas Railroad Commission, I would be able to get the land, I would uh, negotiate the leases, uh, I would figure out what the, the uh, actual uh, the profit margin was going to be, uh, the internal rate of return, uh, the actual investment. Uh, you know, I could do all that stuff, but the numbers weren't my thing. I was able to do the legal uh, documentation to, uh, to put the, to, so the title to the oil and gas would be uh, uh, in the name of the exploration guy. And I would be able to go negotiate with other um, exploration companies if he needed investors and work out farming agreements and, and, and what have you so that we had a full uh, program in place that we could actually sell percentages of that too. So it's kind of, it was a little bit complicated. It's like land development, but it was oil and gas development. And uh, if we did hit oil, then I would go the next step and I would create the division orders and figure out who owned the actual royalties and, and, and figure all that stuff out. And when, when it came to fruition or if we decided to sell it, then I would do the paperwork to, um, to flip the entire package to the next owner. And so that's sort of land development, but on an oil and gas side. But we're talking about commercial leases. It all goes back down to leases. If you don't own the property, then um, you can always lease it out on a 99-year lease. That's what the Galleria is. The Galleria was never owned by Gerald Hines, who was a developer that started out with a, uh, I think, I think he had an engineering degree. Or, you know, you know, I think he was an architect. I'd have to go look back to see what his actual background was. But Gerald Hines was a very um, uh, uh, well-known and uh, a famous uh, developer in the Houston area. He uh, developed the Transco Tower uh, and the water wall in front of the Galleria, as well as the Galleria. And he didn't own that land. He got a 99-year lease on it. And so it's, a, it's called a ground lease. Um, that may be something that you might be interested in, but I don't think that you could actually, I guess you could get a ground lease on a one-acre tract of land out here in Montgomery County uh, if the owner wants to negotiate that. Uh, the beauty of a ground lease is the owner will eventually get the land back after the lease is up, after you've developed it. And the reason that the developer likes the 99-year lease is normally a structure is not going to uh, survive 99 years. The thing with the 99-year lease, though, is by the time you get it back, you may not be alive anymore. If you leased it when you were 60, the odds of you living to 160 are not there. And if you um, have it in a trust or maybe you're, you're putting a package together deal for, you know, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or whatever, whatever the case may be, if you if you have that land for that purpose, that I guess that could work. I'm not sure if it would fit the guidelines for, a, a, for one of the, the federal insured flips like that. But but anyway, that, that gets into a whole different category of federal um, uh, federal regulations uh, and control over your land. And the, the federal government, including the SEC and the FA, I guess it's HUD, and uh, under HUD, they've got a bunch of administrations and that, that kind of guide you also. But getting back to commercial leases, you, you have to decide what is 
best for you. And let's decide, and, and let's say, uh, for an example, you've decided that you want to lease a small property, whether it be in a strip shopping center, uh, whether it just be for, um, you know, we're talking commercial, not residential. They can be similar if it's just for a house. But let's say you you bought several homes uh, in your neighborhood because you got a really good deal on them. Let's say and you inherited several homes, your mother's home. Uh, 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 for whatever reason, maybe you put up uh, tiny homes uh, on trailers or maybe you have a trailer park. Or whatever it may be, it could be that um, you want to lease out and you, people are coming to you because maybe they don't have the uh, the, the, the money uh, the, the available to them because they've put it in other areas. Or maybe they don't have the money. Maybe they're just going to jail. Uh, but they want to lease a property for a commercial venture. That's what we're going to talk about today. So um, if you are in a situation where you are leasing out a property uh, as a landlord, commercial property, or you are uh, in a position where you want to rent property in Texas, uh, I, I, there's a bunch of different governing agencies as a landlord that we'll talk about in a little bit. But in Texas, there's very, uh, it's a very simple section in the Texas Property Code. The Texas Property Code at uh, Title VIII, Chapter 93, is called Landlord T- Property Code, Landlord Tenant, Commercial Tenancies. It's really short. I literally printed the entire code. It's only 10, uh, it looks like double spaced pages long and it tells you what's applicable and what the rules are if you are a tenant or a landlord um, in, in, a com- in a commercial uh, lease setting and again commercial leases could include warehousing retail food um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of all the other industrial uh, uh, there's just a whole litany of things if it's not residential it's commercial and it falls under that that um, that gambit all right so um all right, so if I'm just going to go over the, the topics that are the property code so you don't just like fall over in a faint before I get into some more of the juicy stuff, uh, some of the case law and, and things that have happened to people that have entered leases without um, uh, doing the proper due diligence. Um, property code 93.001 uh, tells you if this is, if you are, actually have a commercial lease. And it says, this chapter applies only to the relationship between landlords and tenants of commercial rental property. Um it also says, for the purpose of this chapter, commercial rental property means rental property that is not covered by Chapter 92, which is residential property, all right? Um, section 93.002, which is the very next, they, they go right in order. The way, that's why the um, lawmakers have put it together, and it was eventually approved by both the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, both the legislature and, the, the, I guess, the Congress and the Senate in, in Texas. Um, the, it's, the second section is called the interruption of utilities, removal of property, and exclusion of a commercial tenant. Um, if you are a landlord or a landlord's agent, uh, you may not interrupt or cause the interruption of the utility services paid for directly or to uh, for paid for directly to the utility company by a tenant, unless the interruption results from a bona fide uh, necessity to make repairs, construction, or, or, or an emergency. And um, basically what that means is if you are leasing out to somebody and they're not paying the rent and um, the utility company is coming to you as the landlord saying, hey, you need to pay this, you can't interrupt their contract even if they're behind on it because the utility company is not going to come to you anyway. You're not the one that signed a, a guarantee to the utility company. They're just going to say uh, they don't – they come to the person that entered the contract. Now – 
The exception to that is if you as the landlord enter the contract and you have multiple uh, tenants on the same utility, maybe you have a split, you can't go in there if they didn't pay the rent and just shut them off. That's not an option um, unless it, it won't be for rent purpose. You can only do it if you're making repairs, if you're doing some construction and it's for safety, or if it's an emergency, like there's a flood and it'd be dangerous or what have you, right? Um, okay, a landlord may not remove a door, a window, or attic hatchway cover or lock, hatch hinge, hinge pin, knock door, doorknob, or other mechanism connected to the door, window, or attic hatchback cover from the premises leased to a tenant or remove furniture, fixtures, or appliances furnished by the landlord from the premises leased to a tenant unless the landlord removes the item for a bona fide repair or replacement. If a landlord removes any of the items listed in this subsection for a bona fide repair or replacement, the repair or replacement must be promptly performed. So... Uh, what that's basically saying is you can't go in there because you may have to have to pay the rent and start removing stuff that you gave them as a part as a as part of the furnished uh, uh, property, and um, you know you've got a lease contract and the lease contract, de de depending on what the provision is, may override this provision. You may have contracted the landlord and the tenant may have contracted that if the tenant does not pay, they have the right to take that. The contract would prevail. This is just a guideline if it's not addressed. In some instances, though, the, the, um, the statute will prevail, so we'll go, go over that in a minute. But in landlord-tenant relationships, it's contractual. Almost in every instance, the lease will prevail over the, uh, the statute because it's a contractual um, area of law, all right? So, but if it's silent, the landlord can't do this. And... You know, you would, it would be hard put for, a, I think, a tenant to say, yeah, it's okay if I don't pay rent. You can start, you can take my door off. Um, you certainly can't do that statutorily in residential leases um, because that there's all these protections to people with their, where they live, their, their homestead, so to speak. That would be a safety issue. But for commercial, it's really different. That's just, that may be their livelihood, but it's not going to injure them. It's, they, they, it may be in your lease that they can live there. And that'd be different if it's their residence and it's their commercial property. But we're talking about strictly a commercial property where somebody doesn't live. And uh, in the the truck forms and in the uh, Texas, I think it's called the uh, Texas Area Realtor Form. These are all uh, Texas Association Realtor Form. They're provided on the um, Texas Association of Realtors website and those particular forms are promulgated by attorneys and they they specifically say that you can't live in your commercial property so that would have to be an exception that you wrote in um, all right a landlord may not intentionally prevent a tenant from entering the lease premises except by judicial process unless the exclusion results from bona fide repairs construction emergency to removing the contents of the premises abandoned by the tenant are changing the door locks of a tenant who is delinquent in paying at least a part of the rent. And we've gone over this in different shows. You can actually take the door off of a commercial lease, but you have to, there's certain guidelines that you have to follow. And if you don't follow those guidelines, then you would be subject to a penalty and damages back to the tenant. And, and just in general, those guidelines are that if you um, remove the door, are the you lock them out you have to tell them what the past you rent is 
um, posted to them. I think it's posted on the door, uh, maybe in an envelope. We'll get to that in a minute because it's actually in the statute. But you have to let them know so they can pay the rent and get the key back or the door put back on. So there has to be some uh, – they have to absolutely be behind the rent. It can't be just what you – uh, are assessing they're behind you have to have proof of it otherwise you're in trouble um but if you they can't it's their burden to prove if they can't prove they paid the rent then you might want to do it but you know it's kind of mean-spirited i don't think that i've seen a lot of commercial tenants taking doors off um all right a tenant um the d part of this section 93.02 is a tenant is presumed to have abandoned the premises if Goods, equipment, or other property in an amount substantial enough to indicate a probable intent to abandon the property is being or has been removed from the premises, and the removal is not within the normal course of the tenant's business. So if you go to your property and it's empty, or if you go to their property and uh, they haven't been there for a while, but all of the ice cream coolers are no longer there, and it's an ice cream shop, that would be uh, probably enough facts to support that they have abandoned the property. Um, however, if they've paid their lease up to the end of the month and um, they've left it, they haven't abandoned the property if the, if the, the lease is, if the, if the rent's been paid. Let's say they paid the rent up through the next year. They haven't abandoned the property. If they can do whatever they want with that property, regardless of whether they've shut the electricity off and taken most of their stuff out. They could be using it for warehouse. It doesn't matter. So uh, you want to be kind of careful about that. Just as a rule of thumb, if they've paid their, not even as a rule of thumb, it's an, it's an absolute a part of uh, a, a typical lease agreement. If they paid the rent, it doesn't matter if it's for a legal purpose. Uh, you They have not abandoned the property. Abandoning the property is is a sort of a an affirmative defense if the landlord goes in and uh, it starts, you know, starts clean up and trying to lease it again. And then the tenant comes back and says, you've, uh, you know, accepted that I've moved out when maybe that's not what the landlord has done. The landlord still expects their rent, but they're trying to mitigate, which is a requirement of a landlord, mitigate the rental uh, that hasn't, mitigate the rent uh, arrearage and the future rent that is due under the contract. The landlord has a duty to mitigate. And so um, it gets kind of touchy there. So you really need to, to document your communications via email or, or um, in fact, people don't use faxes anymore, but uh, text, emails, uh, everything in writing when it comes to something where you start a dispute is probably the best um, direction to go. Um, the E portion of Section 9.3002 is the landlord may remove and store any property of a tenant that remains on the premises that are abandoned. All right. So now we're going back to the term abandonment again. In addition to the landlord's other rights, a landlord may dispose of the stored property if the tenant does not claim the property within 60 days after the date the property is stored. And so you've got to put them on notice of where it's stored. The landlord shall deliver by certified mail to the tenant at the tenant's last known address a notice stating that the landlord may dispose of the tenant's property if the tenant does not claim the property within 60 days after the date the property is stored. Okay. So you you can store the property, but you can't just silently store it and then get rid of it. You've got to you've got to actually follow through with the uh, legal requisites, which is to send a certified mail of what you have and where it is stored, and that it will be abandoned if on a date certain, sixty days from whatever date that you have uh, provided in the letter, and it can't be less than sixty days from when you sent the letter um, to um, retrieve their uh, property. Um, F says if a landlord or landlord's agent 
change the door lock of a tenant who is delinquent in paying the rent, the landlord or the agent must place a written notice on the tenant's front door stating the name and the address of the telephone number of the individual or a company from which the new key may be obtained. The new key is required to be provided only during the tenant's regular business hours and only if the tenant pays the delinquent rent. So in other words, commercial is pretty tough. If you don't pay your rent, then the landlord can lock you out. And that's called a lockout. It does scare uh, tenants because they can't do their business. And they may, you can negotiate. I mean, the landlord's got the, um, got the gold, basically. It's their property, and you haven't paid the rent under your contract. Uh, the landlord should be aware, though, that if they can't prove that, they, uh, that the rent has been paid, which should be a pretty simple thing if rent had been typically paid a certain way and you required to be paid by check or with some kind of receipt, and, they, and you've got, you haven't received that, then um, it's the absence of that that is the proof. Um, many times tenants will say, well, uh, the landlord didn't keep the the property, uh, you know, suitable for me to do my business. And so I had to make repairs and that's why I didn't pay rent. And that's, that's an affirmative defense. So I don't know if I would go there. It happens all the time. I think you're best off if you, um, you know, uh, just to pay your rent. And there's a question about repairs to document it very well. If you need to make repairs, make the repairs so it's, you know, suitable and, and uh, you know, for you to do your business. And then you can hash over that with your deposit or, you know, uh, you know, work something out in writing where you may withhold it in the future months, but definitely document and, and protect yourself as a tenant because the landlord has these it's a very landlord-friendly state in Texas. The landlord has a lot of rights, and one of them is to lock you out. Uh, to go back to the, the part about the storage of the property, the same thing applies about storage of the property. Um, if it's abandoned, uh, you're still talking about a situation where either the lease has terminated and property was left, or the tenant has left and not paid their rent, and it's assumed they have abandoned the lease, and therefore they've abandoned the property that's within the the lease premises. Uh, the, t the landlord still has to send a certified letter to the last known address. And if the lease says it can be an email, then it can be an email. That can be over. It, you can uh, uh, modify the terms of your agreement with regard to how you uh, communicate with each other. Uh, but it needs to be in writing and it needs to be something that a judge can look at and make some decisions upon. Um, but uh, they're not going to receive their property back. Let's say it was, uh, you know, it has to be legal. They can't leave their drugs in there and try to get it back because that would be illegal activity. But let's say they left loose diamonds in the, you know, hidden away in a safe and the, the safe is still in the property. Um, they're not entitled to that property if you have um, rent due uh, because there is in the standard uh, Texas commercial leases that are promulgated by the Texas area, uh, Texas Association of Realtors and through track, if you use that form, there will be a landlord lien, which means if you haven't paid your rent, the landlord has a lien on the property that's in the building. All right. The landlord has to do a few other things to make sure if the landlord is going to do this too. If you're not paying your rent, I can guarantee you that a landlord that has been burnt at least once or has a good attorney is going to make sure that they've got a good landlord lien on uh, the property that you have in their premises, uh, particularly if you're running a retail business. Not necessarily if, uh, I guess even warehousing would be a good thing to have a landlord's lien on. But for, for whatever it is that you have in there, um, if it has some value, uh, the landlord will have a lien upon that if you don't pay your rent. Um, if you uh, 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 
confiscate or move that property, uh, then you are probably committing fraud and you will probably face that in a court of law. Um, if you later, uh, if you've moved the property and there wasn't a fraud finding in court, uh, then you are, and, and then the tenant declares bankruptcy to get around paying the uh, a rent arrearage judgment that the landlord got, then you're going to have to prove fraud to the bankruptcy court. Whole different ball game uh, in order to get your rent arrearage judgment from being forgiven in bankruptcy. It can be done. I've done that. It's been done by many, many um, uh, people that have uh, a judgment for whether it be rent arrearage or what. We're getting into bankruptcy law. But the case that comes to mind is Husky International. Um, it was, uh, gosh, I, I think it was, uh, was it Daniel versus Husky? I'm trying to remember the case. But Husky International is the case that, that is like the, um, the presidential case in, in redefining what uh, is deemed to be fraud under a 523A. Uh, actually, it's a 523 claim. 523 claims are when a, uh, a person declares bankruptcy, and they've done it for the almost solely for the purpose of getting around a judgment. And, uh, and, and usually that judgment is because they, they had a wrongful death case and they had no a million dollars to family and they might have some commercial property that they don't want to give up in bankruptcy, but they also don't want to pay the judgment. Um, if they do have enough debts outside that commercial property and there's no lien on it to um, cover it, there may be a way to get around the judgment. And so the uh, the person that's due the judgment has to file what's called a 523 claim. There's a lot of parameters and deadlines that you have to meet. But if you can prove fraud, then um, then that won't be forgiven and they'll still owe it. They can get all their other uh, bankruptcy, you know, uh, uh, start a free, uh, not start a free, but start a, fre a fresh start is what they call it in bankruptcy. They may get all the other advantages of bankruptcy, but they won't get around the judgment that they owe you if you owe this judgment. And um, Husky International was a case that redefined what um, what uh, what fraud was in certain instances. And you may know or be familiar with Husky. Husky is a uh, tool manufacturer that when you go to Home Depot, you buy their wrenches and their hammers and the various things that, uh, you know, that Husky produces. Well, in this particular case, um, I want to say the last name was Daniel, but the, the bad guy here had... Um, purchased a lot of product from Husky and then uh, didn't pay Husky. And so Husky sued him and got a judgment, like a $300,000 judgment. Not much for Husky, but enough that they were going after it. And uh, what this uh, Daniel uh, group did, or this guy, is he created um, uh, small limited liability companies and partnerships and that were that prevented him from having personal liability for this judgment. And he moved the funds uh, that were in uh, and the assets that were in those companies uh, away from uh, so that it was not it was protected from Husky t being able to get to it. So in other words, he just moved it in name to other smaller uh, other uh, associated companies, and it worked pretty well because Husky lost um, in the first in bankruptcy court. The, there's actually a bankruptcy court that you go to. It's a, a specific. Uh, 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 court uh, expressly for bankruptcy in the federal, uh, the Southern District of Texas, or whatever state you're in, it would be that particular federal uh, uh, court. And um, 
when uh, he lost in the trial court, but he didn't give up, he went, uh, he appealed that to the Fifth Circuit. And the Fifth Circuit said, nope, uh, you know, they, he get this, this Daniel guy gets a fresh start. You didn't prove fraud just because he moved it. You know, too bad for you. You should have known who you were dealing with. So he took it to the United States Supreme Court and won. And that was very unusual for the United States Supreme Court to take a civil case like that on a bankruptcy issue, but they did. And um, the bank, the, the uh, Supreme Court, the United States, back in, this is fairly recent, 2016, uh, said when you um, intentionally uh, uh, dupe or prevent your creditor from uh, being able to realize or pay back a, a judgment by moving property, and in this case it was, it was fraudulent because he did move the property, then um, that's considered fraud under the bankruptcy code, and the judgment is not forgiven, all right? And so um, then the Fifth Circuit didn't like that because the Fifth Circuit didn't agree with it, and we've got a case in the Fifth Circuit right now where they said, well, this goes right back to landlord-tenant. They said, well, um, we agree that you that fraud occurred because in our case, our landlords, um, we had a landlord lien and they moved like a half million dollars worth of furniture out of the property on the day of mediation because we didn't settle with them. It was the eve of trial. Um, and so we, they declared bankruptcy so we wouldn't have to pay them, or so they wouldn't have to pay us uh, under our judgment. And so we sued them and we lost in the bankruptcy court. Uh, and I don't even know how we lost in the bankruptcy court because Husky was good law at that point. Uh, but the district judge, Judge Hughes, said, no, um, this is absolutely fraud. When you uh, take the uh, leaned property and you know it's leaned and you leave with it to prevent a judgment from being paid and you abscond with it and then keep it uh, and hide it, th that's a clear fraud. And so they, the judgment still stands. And so we uh, went to the Fifth Circuit, uh, the, the tenants, one of the tenants, the wife, um, she went to the uh, Fifth Circuit uh, appealing that, saying, oh, well, I'm innocent. I'm the wife. I didn't have anything to do with it. And um, uh, they were the, the Michelle Zellner. She said, uh, initially, she said I didn't, she didn't sign the lease. And, of course, the, the Fifth Circuit said, yes, she did. And then she said, well, I'm not liable because it's my husband's company. And they said, no, you owned it together and you operated it together. You're liable. But they said because um, we needed to prove that uh, the actual value of the property that 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 got took they put wings on and they flew out the door with half a million dollars worth of you know lien free property except for our lien on it. Um, they um, they they said, well, if you you we need evidence of the actual value, and so that's not what Husky says. Husky says that all you have to do is prevent somebody from being paid by uh, these bad and fraudulent acts. And so we're actually um, getting, uh, requesting or petitioning for a writ of certiorari to the United States Supreme Court under the same guidelines as Husky, because Husky is a United States Supreme Court case, and we believe that we're going to win on that. Um, the, the flip side to that is if you have a tenant that didn't pay their rent and you get a judgment from them in, uh, whether it be in the JP court, and I think you can get residential judgments I, don't think, I think you can only do evictions in the JP court. You can get up to $20,000 in rent judgment in a JP court because they're limited in their jurisdiction. Um, if you're in a county court or a district court and uh, you get a judgment for your past due rent and you, um, uh, you're trying to ex execute upon it, so you go get whatever they've got that's not exempt to pay back that judgment until it's, you know, it, it's good, uh, until you're good, you're whole, you, you've gotten all your money back. 
plus interest, and I think it's 5%. It adds up. The interest adds up a lot. So always make sure you get your 5% post and prejudgment for whatever, when you do your petitions to ask for that. But um, if you, uh, if they file for bankruptcy, you've got two avenues of, of, um, uh, of attack. One is actually for that judgment itself, and the other is the entire bankruptcy. In our case, we got... I don't want to say we got lucky. We didn't get lucky. It's just that uh, the uh, uh, Bill and Michelle Zollner both duped the bankruptcy court uh, by committing fraud on their bankruptcy uh, filings. And we were able to get that information when we did what's called a, um, a 2004 exam. And 2004 is just a number in the federal code uh, for a deposition. And it was done by the uh, the, tr the trustee for the estate, and we were able to learn that they had committed fraud in filing their paperwork. And so we've got, uh, you can do a 523 claim, and you can do what's called a 727 claim. Those are actually sections within the bankruptcy code. And one is when you file a 523 is, again, it's just when you're trying to prevent just one debt from being forgiven, whereas the 727 is the whole bankruptcy goes south. Um, we've still got an open case against them in the 727 because I believe the bankruptcy judge um, believed that we were going to win or lose the 523 and settle. And again, you don't, you don't enter a settlement with people that don't uh, that breach their contracts with you because the settlement is also a contract, a legal contract, and they breach their settlement also. So, so we were kind of in a, uh, for the last 10 years, we have been in a fight and, and not because we want to with our, um, previous tenants. Um, so, uh, it, you, that's why you want to make sure that your paperwork is very straight when you enter commercial leases, all right? So we're going to go back to commercial leases and how, whether you're a tenant or a landlord, you can protect yourself um, and you know what your liabilities are, all right? So so if you go to the, um, and I was reading part of the uh, commercial tenancy property code on what you can and cannot do, but these are just the periphery. These are the things while they have just left or they're thinking about leaving. And, and when you're looking at what your a course of action may be if you're a tenant or if your tenant has done something, what your course of action or liabilities may be as a landlord. And that's basically what these, this very brief section on commercial tenancies does for you in the property code. So um, uh, it, this goes on to say that if a landlord or landlord's agent violates the section of, you know, locking out the tenant without proper notice or taking their property without giving them the notice of where it is and, you know, the, the bright uh, requisites, then the landlord is also going to be in trouble. So you have to be careful. You can't just go do this like the Wild West. Um, it says that the tenant may either recover possession of the premises or terminate the lease if it's still within its um, it, it, the pendency of the lease. It's, it's, it still would be active if they uh, the expiration date of the lease hasn't occurred yet, regardless of whether they've actually paid the rent, because that may be a fact issue. Um, and it usually is, because the tenant's always going to uh, always going to say, I either paid or there was damage to the property or the, the landlord uh, breached the, the lease first. So there's a lot of affirmative defenses to that, or, or defenses in general that you can argue um, as a tenant. Uh, the second thing is recover, uh, the tenant can recover from the landlord an amount equal to the sum of the tenant's actual damages, plus one month's rent or $500, whichever is greater. Um, so only up to 500 Reasonable attorney's fees. That's a lot. That really adds up a lot of times more than any of the rent would have added up to or your damages. 
and court costs, usually not that much. It's just what it's like $1,000, depending on what, what court you're in. And, you know, it gets more expensive as you get to the higher courts. Less any delinquent rents or other sums. So um, there would be damages. But if you had delinquent rents and that was proven, then that you still have to pay those. You don't get to go, uh, you don't get, you can't have it both ways. Um, are sums for which the tenant is liable to the landlord. Um, the next section says a lease supersedes this section to the extent of any conflict. And that's what I said earlier. You can, your lease, your contract with, that you enter with your tenant or the landlord, depending on which one you are, that's going to supersede any of the provisions that we just talked about. But here's the key. If the statute says that the statute supersedes, then it will. So you have to look. It just depends. Those particular provisions of lockout and abandonment and and, uh, and, and taking property and storing that kind of thing, you can all your your lease will supersede that, and it even it specifically and expressly says that in the statute that the lease will supersede the provisions that we just read. But if it's silent on it, this is what you've got to work with. All right. So uh, the next section is ninety three point oh three. There's only ten very small sections in the commercial tenancy um, in the property code. Um, this one is commercial tenants' right of reentry after an unlawful lockout. So let's say your landlord just says you owe late fees and you try to pay them and they wouldn't accept it and they they uh, the landlord improperly didn't accept your rent. And this kind of goes, uh, it's on the same uh, grain as residential, but we're only talking about commercial right now. So it's in the commercial code. You can find the residential part of the of what your position would be and your liabilities and what have you in the Texas Property Code Chapter 92. Um, all right, so this section is uh, says, if a landlord has locked a tenant out of lease premises in violation of the section we just read, 93.02, the tenant may recover the possession of the premises as provided for by... Sections 90, this is the section that I'm getting ready to read to you, and it's real short. Um, the tenant must file with the justice court in the precinct in which the rental property is located a sworn complaint for reentry. So you don't just get to go back in there. You have to actually go to the JP court because JP courts have jurisdiction over um, evictions, and this would be like a construction eviction if they've locked you out. All right. Um, they need to specify the facts of the alleged unlawful lockout by the landlord, the landlord's agent. The tenant must also state orally under oath to the justice um, the facts of the alleged unlawful lockout. So it, it's usually pretty quick. You can get these hearings Zoom uh, by Zoom, online or in person, really fast, like within a few days. Even in, in the worst of the cases, the court, uh, all of the Montgomery County JP courts will get you on that docket quick because they want you to run your business, right? Um, all right. So if the tenant has complied with subsection B and going to the JP court to get a, a motion, and they've done the motion for re-entry, if the justice reasonably believes an unlock, unlawful lockout has likely occurred, the justice may issue an ex parte, um, ex parte, without even the landlord being there, a writ of re-entry that entitles the tenant to immediate and temporary possession of the premises pending a final hearing on the tenant's sworn complaint for re-entry. So basically, and I don't know many JP judges will do this, but you can go in there without even noticing the landlord to get re-entry and bring that piece of paper to him saying, I've got a court order saying me get my key back. Um, typically, what my experience has been with these, um, uh, you know, temporary injunction type hearings, all the judges say you need to contact them because I'm not going to do anything until I know that you've contacted them, even though the statute says you may be able to do an ex parte. The judges around here just aren't going to do that. You're going to have to contact your landlord and say, by the way, there's a hearing set and it's a temporary hearing and, and this is what time it's going to be there. You can be there and, you know, give them a notice of at least three days. That's what's 
uh, required under the notice statute in the Texas Rules of Civil Procedure. All right. Um, the writ of reentry must be served on either the landlord or the landlord's management company on premises on-premises manager or the rent collector in the same manner as the writ of possession in a forcible entry, uh, de, uh, forcible detainer action. That's an eviction action. Um, a sheriff or constable may use reasonable force in executing the writ of re-entry under the section. So if your landlord's dodging you, the sheriff can go track him down and, and serve him, and that's kind of scary, and I don't think I've ever seen that. Usually landlords are of the position that they'll let you, they'll usually let you back in again. I mean, when our tenants didn't pay their rent, they were behind like two years, and we we didn't want to hurt them. We didn't want to hurt their livelihood. We just wanted them to to pay, and and our tenants um or, or you know give us a reasonable uh, explanation. But you know when someone says they're going to pay you rent in over a ten to twelve year period, and by the by the uh, their actions have shown that they're not going to pay you because you know you've given them so many years to do it, or they're only going to pay you a little, or they've kind of taken it in their own hands to just determine that it's going to be their way. Well, that's not contractual either. And so you can't be a wuss if you're a landlord. You have to step up to the plate and ask that your um, the, the contract be met, or they may argue that you've waived that contract provision. So, you know, you need to be pretty diligent about documenting. I'm giving you this much time because for whatever reason may be, whatever their excuses for not paying, but kind of keep up with it. You can't just ignore it and uh, ignore the contract. And that goes with whether it's an oral or written agreement. Um, agreements all need to be in writing to be enforceable in Texas if they're uh, to, if they're over, if they, they will be law, over a year. So any lease that's over a year has to be in writing. But if you have a month-by-month month tenancy, that's not over a year. And it could, um, you know, uh, foreseeably be only a six-month lease. That can be an oral agreement. You still have to prove you have an agreement. You still have to prove all the elements of that agreement that you had, you know, two parties, meeting the mind, offer consideration, uh, you know, legality and that kind of thing. You have to you have to meet all the elements still. But it's a lot harder when it's oral than it is when it's in writing. So I always just say rule of thumb, get it in writing. Even it has to be something as simple as, um, you know, uh, putting it in an email with just the, like the letter of intent terms and this is binding, something like that. Um, there has to be consideration in Texas. We are a non-disclosure state. You don't have to put the amount of the consideration, but there has to be consideration. Um, so if you, like when you see in leases and deeds, it says, um, you know, for uh, for right, uh, or however it's phrased, just consideration of $10 and, uh, you know, zero, zero cents. That's just for the purpose of meeting that requirement. That's not the that's a uh, that's not the actual consideration. Now, on the other hand, if no consideration was exchanged, whether it be a promise for a promise or actual money or whatever, if no, then you don't have a contract. There has to always be consideration. So, you know, it may be sort of a, a technicality, but just be aware of that. That ten dollars doesn't mean that's the amount that they paid, and the same thing would apply toward a lease too. All right. Um, so. Uh, it says the landlord is entitled to a hearing on the tenant's sworn complaint for reentry. The writ of reentry must notify the landlord of the right of a hearing. So the temporary injunction doesn't. It can be, it may be ex parte if the judge will let that fly. But for the actual hearing for reentry, they have to have proper notice. The writ of reentry must notify the landlord of the right to the hearing. The hearing shall be held not earlier than the first day and not later than the seventh day after the date the landlord, the landlord requests a hearing. So the tenant may be wanting it, but the landlord must request the hearing. Um, or it has to be the day that's it's, uh, set for them. It says, if the landlord fails to request a hearing on the tenant's sworn complaint 
for reentry before the eighth day after the date of service of the writ of reentry before the eighth day after the date of service. Boy, that's really confusing. That just means, you know, get to it. Don't wait over a week. Um, uh, then a judgment for the court course may be rendered against the landlord. So landlord, if you get one of these motions for writ of reentry, just don't ignore it. Uh, and, and don't be out of pocket for, uh, you know, forever. But if they can't serve you because you're out and you're the only one that can receive it, then you're not served and they can't go back in. I mean, unless they've got a temporary injunction that says that they can. So you're getting kind of iffy. You may need a, if it's not, you're, if you're a, a landlord that's not in state or not on the premises, you're going to be out of the country for a while, you may need to appoint somebody or give them power of attorney to manage the property for you. And that's always kind of wise when you have, you always want to keep somebody local looking at your property. Okay, a party may appeal from the court's judgment at the hearing um, on the sworn complaint for the reentry in the same manner as a party may appeal a judgment in the forcible detainer suit. So um, if, the, uh, if one party or the other is not happy with the, the final decision made by the fact finder, and this is the judge, it's not a jury trial, um, then they can um, ask for, uh, they can appeal to the county court. This is all in the JP court. Uh, to get the premises back. And you see it all the time. If you've got a mad enough uh, landlord or tenant, everybody's digging their heels in, then it may go up to the county court. Um, in JP court, you don't need an attorney if you have a, um, if it's for a, uh, a corporation or, um, you know, if you've got it in, if you've got the property owned by a, a trust or an entity. I believe that by the time, if you go to the county court, though, you have to be represented, that entity has to be represented by an attorney. I mean, I would do that anyway. Of course, I'm an attorney, so I'm not really looking at it from the angle of not being, not having representation. Um, if a writ of possession is issued, it's supersedious, it supersedes a writ of reentry. So a writ of possession to the landlord is going to wipe out the writ of reentry. So the landlord would have won in that case. Um, if the landlord or the person on whom a writ of reentry is served fails to immediately comply with the writ or later disobeys the writ, the failure is grounds for contempt of court against the landlord or the person whom the writ was served. Um, so, uh, and that's under the, that's actually under the government code, not the property code. Um, I'll say this. If you've got your property set up in the Secretary of State, which many people do, whether it be a professional association, or if it's under the name of, uh, you know, a, a real estate investment trust or a limited liability company, a limited partnership, whatever it may be, there's usually a person that can be served in the Secretary of State. That's the first place I go. I, when, when, I, when somebody contacts me about a client that, you know, it's a tenant, landlord, land, whatever it is, if it's, I always go to look to see if there is a, an assumed name filed with the Secretary of State or if that entity is still in existence it, and they pay their, you know, uh, I guess it's their, um, the, the taxes, the comptroller, or if it's, um, and even if they have, you can file a form and it keeps it going even if they haven't paid the taxes. A lot of people don't run their business. They just have, you know, an entity that's that's holding there until they actually start the business. Um, the uh, I look in there because it tells you who to serve. And you can rely upon that. That's legal service. If, if you're out of the country and you forgot that you deemed that the person that can receive service is uh, your mother-in-law, and she's also out of the country, and they certify mail her a copy of the hearing, then you could very well be having a hearing and not even know because they can prove that they, uh, they sent certified mail. thing with that, though, is they'll send it certified mail and nobody will have picked it up. So um, they still, there's still some question as the hearing, if they, whether or not the hearing could go forward. Um, if a writ is disobeyed by the landlord, let's say they actually get it and they're like, eh, we're not going to let it back in again. Um, the tenant or the tenant's attorney may file in court, which the reentry action is pending affidavit stating the name of the person 
who has disobeyed the writ and describing the acts and omissions dis, uh, constituting the disobedience. On receipt of the affidavit, the justice shall issue a show cause order directing the person to appear on a designated date and show cause why he should not be adjudicated in contempt of court. Um, if the justice finds, after considering the evidence at the hearing, that the person has directly or indirectly disobeyed the writ, which is disobeying the court, the justice may commit the person to jail without bail until the person purges himself of the contempt in a manner and form as the justice may direct. If the person disobeyed the writ before receiving the show cause order, but has complied with the writ after receiving the order, the justice may find the person in contempt and assess the punishment under the government code, which is going to be some financial penalty. So just because you, you, you know, kind of him and haw and finally get the key back to let them in. If you didn't do it immediately upon receiving it and you you created a hardship for them, the judge is still going to find you in contempt because you're in contempt. You should just give the key back. So don't take these uh, judges' orders lightly. Um, however, this is just an aside. If you have a Rule 11 agreement because you didn't want to go to court and the other side has agreed, well, we will agree to pay and we'll give you the key back or, you know, whatever the case may be, then... Um, you are not in a good place because a Rule 11 agreement is not a court order in the eyes of the uh, of some uh, 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 the police, uh, governmental authority. Um, and it also doesn't hold up in bankruptcy courts. So your best is going to the hearing and just getting it out there rather than agreeing with somebody that you already know is going to breach their agreement. Okay, so we learned that kind of the hard way too. Um, Station Manager Dick has tell is telling me that I have uh, two minutes uh, before I have to end this particular segment, and I didn't get to nearly the stuff I wanted to get to, but I will say this, um, that if you are a, um, if you enter a commercial lease in Texas, whether you're the landlord or the tenant, um, if you're the landlord, please use the Texas Association of Realtors promulgated form. It's got all the blanks to fill in for you. It, it, it's an as-is uh, provision. You can fill it in. It's got, it's, it's, it, will up, it will protect you in court. Now, on the flip side, if you're a tenant, you need to use very much due diligence before you enter a property if this standard commercial form is used because you have the liability to inspect it and get a certificate of occupancy wherever the land may sit or where the property sits. Whether that be if you're in an ETJ, it's going to be for the city of Conroe, you still have to use city of Conroe's um, certificate of occupancy. If it's um, in the, the city of Montgomery, if it's just in Montgomery County, uh, wherever it may be, you need to go to that particular jurisdiction and find out what their requirements are. And, and it, this particular form requires that the tenant get the certificate of occupancy. It may be that when you negotiate it that you want tenant improvements, that's something that's going to, that's completely negotiable. You're probably going to have a hard time getting it right now because it is a landlord's market. Uh, uh, depends on what the area is. But if the landlord wants to lease, they have more incentive to give you the tenant improvements um, beforehand, usually the first month's rent, to uh, to make the particular property uh, more uh, unique for your particular business. So, um but very, very important to do your due diligence, whether you need to get a structural engineer, a civil engineer, uh, you need to get the, the fire code out there, whoever it may be, you may want to get a 10-day uh, period uh, where you can put like $100 down in order for you to do your due diligence before you move into the property to make sure that it's uh, suitable for the needs that you want because your implied warranty of suitability will not apply in the, this in Texas's um, uh, commercial lease form because it's got as is all over it, and it says, tenant beware, you're taking this, and you're going to look at it. And there's a few exceptions to that, but not many. There, there was going to be 
uh, latent defects that you couldn't see and that they're, 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 it's a real stretch to be able to let that fall and be in, your t- in the tenant's favor. So um, station manager Dick is telling me that I have to wind up. Uh, I will, uh, my, our next program will be more detail about the actual commercial lease and commercial tenancies. And so until then, remember to serve God by serving others. Enter your landlord and tenant uh, relationship leases with a good heart. Always negotiate with a fair and good heart. And we will see you next week.